0: Welcome everybody to uh, another episode of uh, Spartan Theology. I was about to say Apocalypse here because we were just talking about John's channel, but that's not where we are right now. or on my channel, so uh, yeah, we got a pretty exciting interview lined up today. We got Josh and Rachel Rasmussen, who wrote this book, uh, "When Heaven Invades Hell." We're going to be having a discussion like about the book and just about universalism in general. Just, I think it'll be a really really cool discussion. I got John on here with me who is kind of like the one that introduced me to more of this topic, so I thought it would be really good to have him on to help me do the conversation or do the interview and whatnot. But, yeah, so I guess um, I got Josh's link to his website and the Amazon link to the book. I would definitely recommend anybody check it out. We both, me and John both, really enjoyed reading it. We were just talking about before we went live how we just really enjoyed it. It was like a pretty quick read, but it really brings up like a lot of like – interesting it really made me think about a lot of things in like a different way which i thought was like really really awesome so yeah if uh i guess to start off i would if you could just kind of introduce yourself dr raspison and rachel and uh, yeah josh but uh yeah if you guys could just introduce yourself really quick and then we'll kind of dive in we have a list of questions we can go through
1: My mission is to uncover insights that really matter, and I guess that's it. That's all you got to know.
2: And my name is Rachel, and I have a master's degree in physical chemistry, um, and currently am uh, homeschooling four kids. And uh, and so yeah, so I, Josh and I talk philosophy all the time. So that's uh, that's sort of the birthing place of this book.
1: Yeah, I've do du- everything I know. I've duplicated it into her, and then everything <laughs> she knows, she's duplicated. <laughs> 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 nice, nice. Right. Yeah, should i introduce myself yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. do you think people of times, know
3: <laughs> i've been can, on this yeah. channel so many times that I'm, yeah for sure but
0: if you don't yeah you can hear yeah. yourself too and tell people cause there sure. probably will be some people who check this out for sure that haven't watched every single one of my other videos so yeah,
3: yeah. um yeah my name's john depew um I have a little channel on youtube called apocalypse here talk about uh practical theology stuff and how academic biblical studies and theology can sort of inform our our everyday life as christians um i'm a graduate of duke divinity school um back yeah four years ago or so and i work as a pastor now in uh, Cary, north carolina which is just on the road from durham where i reside so um yeah it's great to be here talk with you
0: all For sure. So I guess we're going to start off. We have, like, in the beginning, we'll talk more about just the book in general. There's definitely some topics that we can go through here. So I think John has the first question we have lined up. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
3: Before we kind of get into the book itself, which, again, as Ethan indicated, was was wonderful. um, We were kind of wondering about the impetus for this book. Why why did you all choose to kind of step into this? I mean, it's really a contentious conversation um, yeah. among scholars and pastors and lay people, um, by, why did you decide to step into this by writing a work of
1: fiction? Well, yeah. So because it's yeah. so contentious, Yeah, the idea of fiction, you know, this debate that happens in heaven, mm. I feel like that would help people to kind of explore these ideas in a fresh way. They wouldn't feel like we're trying to make some arguments that, you know, like going across familiar territory, people put up their shields. Instead, it would be more of an exploration. And for me, the exploration was the impetus for the book. I mean, Rachel and I, and she can mm-hmm. speak to this, have been sort of just on a journey of trying to understand more. You know, and it's not like we've figured out the answers, but we've discovered things that, I mean, I didn't know could be discovered. There were things that I had no idea that verse was in there or that interpretation was in there or, um, You know this analysis was available Mm. and so that's part of what really inspired me after my own thinking had begun to transform i had begun to make some discoveries i really wanted to provide a context for people to explore those
2: yeah so it's interesting because i think uh you're hitting on something when you talk about it's a a very hostile debate within christianity right and i think that one thing that i've noticed is that when people are uh, stepping up to the podium as an authority, and they are um, having the purpose of defending a view, because this is the right view, (laughs) Then, then what happens is, is that inadvertently actually closes down discussion, so that you actually are not able to see more than what you already have declared is true. And so when there are different people who say, this is true, no, this is true, no, this is true, no, this is true, then you're actually not having a discussion anymore and you're not actually open to seeing something differently than you've been taught or than it has been handed down to you. And so uh, one thing that Josh and I like to do just in our own time is we actually like to play acts like different perspectives and Mm -hmm. different um, hypothetical, like, what if this is the case? What if that is the case? And then we like to just explore, uh, you know, the different motivations. Why would somebody think this? Why would somebody um, argue against this? How does this, Mm -hmm. you know, come across to somebody else? And so because we are constantly doing that in, you know, behind closed doors like that, that's our main entertainment activity so you know so some people might that that might seem rather boring but to us it's very fun but um
1: well it's not just endless (laughs) debates it's like really trying to explore something like we really want to understand you know and
2: and it's it's definitely it's it's not like um for example David Bentley Hart's book where he is laying out an argument saying this is true and in fact it's evil if you don't believe this view or you know some other some other books where it's like defending a certain view of the afterlife this is true and if you don't believe this you're gonna go to hell or what you know whatever whatever it is right um so that's not the approach that we're taking and in fact we're trying to model through the work of fiction where um already you're a little bit detached from reality because it's a fictional Mm. world it's in a sense, modeling what it's like to just explore the ideas rather than to just defend an idea. This is what it is just, you know, hands down. And, and almost like, instead of closing it off so that this isn't a discussion, opening it up to say, what can I learn? Is there something new that I haven't seen before?
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, that's super cool. That's like exactly, I, I like, I totally, I really like that. Cause I think I could tell, like ask people, or like, give people that like, you should read this book, check it out. Even if like, they're probably much more hostile to something like David Bentley Hart's book or whatever exactly, like they're gonna you like you said, put their shields up real quick when it's a, a, like an argument, like this is what we think is true. But this can really like, and it really did for me, like got my mind thinking about things in a different way. So I think jumping in in with a work of fiction was really, really cool. Definitely But cool. if I
1: could just add here real quick, um, yeah I feel please. like there's kind of layers of goals and I think for me, one of the big goals was to showcase the difference between the pattern of the kingdom of heaven and the pattern of the kingdom of darkness, to showcase the difference. And that showcasing is completely independent, even of exploring some of these eschatological or sociological ideas about salvation, uh, universalism or annihilationism or whatever those views are. That And, and I think because we talk about In a sense, we sort of make an argument threaded through the characters. Um, It's possible to almost miss what I think is kind of maybe even a more important take home, which is just identifying the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of darkness, which is something that's very applicable to the present. It's not sort of behind the invisible wall of like, after you die, what will happen? It's like, here are the earmarks. Here's what the kingdom of heaven looks like. Here's how you can identify it. And in a way, it's almost sort of obvious when you point it out. I mean, the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, sort of obvious. But then showing how this looks in a particular clash of kingdoms through the debate. Mm -hmm. I think that's where it starts getting interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. If I just one thing with that. And another thing, I think we'll touch on this in one of our later questions. But like, yeah, not only does it address like universalism, but also like, Get to, I thought a lot to, got me thinking about, like, what it actually means to be a person or whatever. Like, what, like, is mm-hmm. very, like, wh- who are, who am I? You know, am I, like, these bad things or, like, what? Because, you know, when some people talk about universalism and, like, oh, you get stripped away of all, like, the bad things. Are you even yourself anymore and, like, how those things. So I thought you kind of, like, addressed that, too, you know, like, what yeah. that means. But, yeah, we can, I think we'll get into, like, a more concrete question around that later. But, yeah.
3: Yeah. For sure. Um, I was curious about what some of your influences were as far as your tone and sort of style of this book. Um, I was able to sort of detect a bit of C.S. Lewis, not just because he shows up in the book, uh, <laughs> and also some uh, some George MacDonald, really, and uh, in the way that you were sort of articulating things. But yeah, who were some of the influential writers, I guess, that you were sort of
1: Rachel, yeah. Rachel, Rachel was my yeah, influence. She was my influence. Yeah. I'm not saying for her to talk, she can talk. But yeah, okay. She was also she my, was my influence. Your influence. Very She's nice. one of my yeah. influencers. Good. <laughs> Good.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think mostly we were just, um, I mean, we were just very authentic. So uh, we yeah. were trying to just use whatever form. And, and I mean, uh, I think somebody on the Amazon review said that, you know, the form of the dialogue is a little bit you know weird yeah it's a little different (laughs) But, but actually i felt like um i actually wasn't i was trying not to you know model my writing off of somebody else in terms of like how they would do it i was actually trying to find a way of delivering the ideas in sort of like the the most helpful form for the reader so like there are certain parts where uh, for example, the the dialogue all gets indented and it's because mm-hmm. it goes into a long monologue, like describing an idea. And, you know, there are other parts where it's not like that because it's just kind of back and forth. It's more like in the scene. And um, I I kind of was making it dec- like I was kind of the, uh, the final uh, decision maker in terms of the style of the book. So the way that I was kind of going about that was I really want to um make it easy for someone to be able to come back and say where did the beginning of that thought start and so you can just kind of go back and say oh okay here's where it started and here's here's where it is here's how it's continuing Mm -hmm. and so then it's like easier to keep track of the flow of the ideas um and so i uh i because i felt like you know it was kind of um you know the combination of josh's philosophical inclination like we want to just go through and do bullet by bullet premise by premise Uh arguments yeah right and then having that within a creative frame so that it's Mm -hmm. not just so academic like we don't we don't want to end up with like symbols and boxes and arrows that you know like we don't want it to be that technical right so we wanted to have that that combination of the ease of accessibility to the intellectual data that is presented as well as um being put into the artistic frame so that's kind of how we approached it
3: yeah great yeah. thank you
0: yeah for sure and so i guess to kind of start off talking about like the actual book itself i thought like the idea the way you addressed it in the beginning with the whole idea of like god asking the people in heaven what they think he should do was just really, really clever. Cause it could have been like, like God telling the people, like, I'm going to do this, you know, and this is why or whatever. But like, and that I thought it was just really, really cool. Cause the way they like address, you know, we obviously like, this sounds good, but there's a reason like, God like the whole like debate and everything was just really, really cool. So I was kind of curious, like where you came up with the idea to like structure it that way and not like just, you know, it could have been any number of ways. But like, yeah, I thought just kind of how you came up with that idea.
1: Yeah, so I had this sort of initial outline of the book, where the question was going to be posed, so that the citizens of heaven could debate the question. And it's interesting, because the question, well, the question was something like, how would you feel if a separated soul were permitted a place uh, with us? Okay. And that very question was interpreted one way earlier in the book by the characters. And then if you noticed, after they had more experiences, they came back to the question again and they interpreted the, the question in a different way. It was like the very we had this line in there, experience unlocks meaning. And this plays a role, even like how do you interpret the biblical texts? Experience unlocks meaning. And so we even played that into um, the interpretation of the question. So it was there because I feel like people learn through discovery and the feeling of the whole book from beginning to end is discovery it's like what is this what is this and so even the question even the meaning of the questions you you get to discover its meaning as you go through the book
2: and even just the fact that jesus taught in parables and he often replied to questions with questions and i felt like there was something about having the it's like if you have the heart of a seeker like you actually want to know what's true then you're going to use the question as an invitation to go deeper versus if your intent is to just be a skeptic and to just knock something down well then you're not going to use the question uh you know to go deeper but you would have used an answer a straight-up answer as a weapon back at them saying hey well that can be true because of blah 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 like so so I think that the the tool of the question is a very powerful,
0: um, you know, a,
3: a very powerful tool. For sure, for sure, yeah. 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 So in the book, y'all use um, Moses and Adam as sort of representatives of what you call the noble and then the hopeful. So Moses is the noble representative and Adam as the hopeful representative, which I thought was just so, so charming, <laughs> I really, really enjoyed it. Um, Will you tell the folks sort of what each group represents, so you have the noble and the, the hopeful, and why you decided on those specific figures for
2: those representations? So when you think of Moses, what comes to mind is uh, the exodus of the Israel of the Israelites out of Egypt. And you think of the tablets, the Ten Commandments, the law. So you think of Moses as someone who really cares about the law, and what is written and the accuracy of the revelation. And you think of that as the value system. And um, so we were choosing Moses as a sort of archetype of perhaps even Christians who would care very much about, you know, we're not doing reader interpreted. We're not doing like, you know, we're not being too progressive over here. We're not just trying to use philosophy to, you know, to, to just, you know, philosophize things away. Like we're not, not going
1: to appeal to our dreams that. or to yeah, so other sources, you know, we're going to look at the revealed that we would
2: Yeah, yeah that, that we would very much value the arguments, what has been written, we value the word of God, we value, you know, and that um, that is actually noble. And so because of that, like we wanted to give uh, the, the title or the meaning of that, where perhaps somebody uh, who's on the other side and they think, oh, if you uh, if you believe in something like an eternal hell, like that would be evil, that would be horrible, right? And, and it's almost like giving people on the other side, uh, you know, another frame for thinking about people who might defend such a view uh, as eternal punishment. And it's actually out of some virtue, it's out of the nobility of wanting to take the revealed words of God throughout history, seriously. And so that was why we chose Moses for that side of the argument.
1: Yeah. And we never take that away. It's not like we set up a good character only to reveal that in greater light, it's not a good character, like all the way through the end, you find yourself like rooting for all the characters, because that's one of the things it's like, can you have a disagreement even in heaven where all the characters are good and virtuous? You know, I mean, that's already sort of a philosophical question because you might assume, no, if if you're good, then you have a uniformity of beliefs. You can't have different perspectives. But I actually think that some of the deepest and most meaningful opportunities for love and for the experience of love comes precisely through difference of perspective. That's something we wanted to showcase. So the other side was the hopeful and they represent, so there's this question, how would you feel if we let a dark one or a separated one uh, they didn't know in the beginning how dark this separated one was, or who this was, but how would you feel if, if we gave we gave them opportunity to be with us? So the hopeful represented a case for hope, for the possibility that this was, was, was um, a good thing. Which if I can just add here, this was out of the interpretation of the question as this is a test. The Lord wants to see what we think is appropriate. But then later through experiences, there's an interpretation of the question as, well, how would you feel? Emphasis on the word feeling. And so it it gives a little bit of a different, like, is this a test to figure out what's true? Or is this a test to figure out how we would feel about such an offer? You see, and that's different. And I think sometimes I can say for myself, sometimes as a philosopher, I'm caring so much about truth. It's almost like I lose sight of some of the heart things, the heart Mm -hmm. things that Mm -hmm. may actually matter so much but then gets lost uh when we're just debating to figure out okay is this true or is this true well how would you feel if this were true even if it isn't for example Mm -hmm. how would you feel (laughs) you know would you be upset would you be like oh no that violates you know you know what i mean so yeah for sure that's really
0: yeah really it's and it really is cool how you like like moses is like you said like noble till the end or whatever you know it's not some flaw you don't find out like There's just some flaw in his character is why he was thinking this. Or even in
3: his reasoning. Yeah. Even in his reasoning his reasoning was tight. Yeah. Right. Right. Um Yeah. I I, real quick before we move on, I I really so Josh, you brought up that um there there was sort of a shift in understanding what the question was to begin with. Um, sort of in the middle of the book, which I um picked up on right away and I thought that that was a really yeah really wonderful kind of move within the the narrative that you were depicting. So That's cool that you picked up, up on it. It was it's great. Yeah. yeah. it was very subtle. Yeah.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, well and it, it it's relate relevant to how we understand other revelation, right? Yeah. I mean there are things in the in the Bible I I wonder if God in his wisdom sort of sees how these things can be interpreted in this way given this context given this state of limitation this state of lack of knowledge but knowing that in the fullness of time there'll be new interpretations clearer interpretations but it's almost like you need a certain set of experiences even to appreciate those interpretations like when you go yeah. back to the same text again and then you get something new out of it that was there all along but you never noticed it
0: yeah for sure i think that's that really hit home with me that whole like experience unlocks meaning and like I mean, it's just, like, people want to say, like, oh, it obviously says this or whatever, or obviously, like, the plain reading or whatever. But, like, I yeah. mean, in reality, like, your experiences throughout your life are everything. When you look at it, like, you, you're there's no just, like, it's not a math problem or whatever when you read a book, for sure. And like the
1: dress. The dress obviously yeah. looks gold. No, and it looks yeah. blue. Yeah. <laughs> Like yeah. we looked at that dress picture, we saw opposite colors, okay. opposite. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so yeah. it was obvious that it was whatever it was.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. She actually
1: pulled it up on the computer and zoomed in on the pixels, yep. and that's how <laughs> it was able to shift. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh.
0: Uh, but uh, yeah, the next one we have is so in Moses's opening statement. So kind of like the way it's laid out is they get presented the question, and they each have each side gets a chance to do, like, an opening statement. And in Moses' opening statement, he uses the four pillars of wisdom, you called it, and it, like, were justice, revelation, liberty, and agreements. And I I thought that was really interesting, like, the way he, like, or not necessarily, like, it wasn't really something Moses came up with, the character. It was just kind of, like, the way it was. But it was interesting, like, the four ways you kind of broke down his, like, argument and his understanding. I'm just curious, like, how you came up with that. Like, how did you decide to use the pillar imagery and like the scrolls and whatnot coming out of them and like how'd you kind of come up with those four concepts as a way to you know break yeah it so there's
1: there's the conceptual and then the presentation and when we sort of divided our tasks we both entered into both projects uh rachel was the director of the presentation and the event sequence or the let's say had the final say on that and then i took myself as kind of a director of the Um, conceptual drama or the idea drama so there's an event drama overlaying an idea drama and when I was thinking about kind of how to divide the main arguments the ones that I've personally let's say wrestled with or thought a lot about or heard a lot about um, ones that persuaded me um, and that I then saw under new light through further reflection it seemed like they kind of boiled down to those four categories Uh, well actually the first one, the argument from contracts or agreements that that was kind of off the wall, like that's a new one that's for the plot and that opens your mind to things that um, are maybe on the edges of what Christians might normally think about talk about, but not irrelevant to the plot. Uh, but yeah, so the idea that there's a whole set of arguments just from the Bible, you know, and how do we interpret the Bible and then I've noticed in conversations and also in my own reflection that once you sort of work through enough of the biblical data, there's always these philosophical arguments that come up. One of them is from Liberty. Actually, I was having a conversation with J.P. Moreland. I think you were, were you with me? But I was having a conversation with him about this, and he brought up the argument from Liberty uh, that, uh, you know, God honors people's choice so people can choose to reject him. And if they do, then they're separated, and God will honor that choice. And then the argument from Justice, that you can't just, give separated souls who choose to be separated a free pass uh, that violates the laws of justice. And it seemed like those are kind of the general categories of arguments and by setting it up in terms of the scrolls or or the pillars, it allowed for an exploration of those arguments in a kind of depth through the the debate that place.
0: Yeah, for sure. That's really cool. Um, yeah, I guess we're going to get into the, yeah, that we kind of laid out, but I thought like, For sure, like, whenever you have these conversations, for sure, justice and free will or liberty are, like, the two things that people definitely bring up. So I thought the way you engaged with these ideas was really cool and really... Like, some of the analogies you use like, really, really hit home and, like, I thought were really good, especially about, like, the free will, how, like, I think there's a lot... Like, that's a big one for me because I think people just... Yeah, there, there's so many understandings of free will. It's such like a philosophical topic and whatnot. But, like, what does it really mean to be free? And like, you kind of explore like, is it really a free freedom to have like, if you don't fully understand and is really like making this horrible choice really free or is that just like not free? You know, you're and I think you explored that in a really cool way for sure.
1: Yeah, and then even when a choice is free. Love always protects. That's a verse we bring in there, you know? And it's like, well, what when I think of my kids, like which which choices would I give them? Um, And also would I ever sort of give up? You know, do I have the power to give them a new choice, for example? I mean, it's kind of interesting for each of the arguments uh, that are for the noble or against the hopeful, all the arguments against allowing somebody to come in. There is a way of flipping all those arguments around so that we end up making the argument an argument from justice as a way of making things right uh, against the idea that beings are separated in a way that doesn't make right broken relationships. And then from liberty, we end up making an argument right from liberty for the possibility of getting new chances. You know, because mm-hmm. it's all it's all about a possibility, right? How would you feel if you know if there was an offer if there was a possibility? And so that's something we explore. Yeah.
0: Uh, Yeah, you I can pick
1: up on that real quick. Yeah, yeah, the
3: insights from from Adam's character in the book um, having to do with justice, I think intersects really beautifully with sort of contemporary discussions of justice in theology and biblical studies and even sort of political philosophy and the Mm -hmm. like. Um, A a lot of... uh, Christians living in the modern Western world, I think have a very sort of limited understanding of justice, usually in terms of retribution, right? Where punishment is the sort of end in itself um, in response to some sort of wrong that's been inflicted on someone else. Um, but this, as I'm sure you know, creates even more deficit, right? It's not actually filling the defi- the deficit that is created when a harm is done, right? It just keeps sort of digging more and more holes into that already deficient space. So it it doesn't actually repair damage, right? Um, it doesn't give back something that's lost in that scenario. And yeah. I, I think for a lot of people, God's justice is like that. God fundamentally does this sort of retributive uh, thing yeah. in response to our wrongdoing. Um, this is where we tend to go. And I, I think it has a lot to do with the sort of cultural um, pressures coming from especially... And political pressures coming from our criminal justice system too this is really where we go in terms of our uh concepts right um but you have adam saying hey wait a minute justice doesn't mean one thing right (laughs) and the sort of driving account of god's justice is really restoration for adam in this book right in that sort of approach um even though there's going to be real accountability and real consequences from wrongdoing right um there is uh justice really is to do with restoration right is this sort of were you having some of this stuff in mind as you were writing this the sort of larger discussion about justice sort of within biblical studies and philosophy and theology as you were writing this
2: character yeah certainly so um i had actually done a word study um through the biblical text of the word justice and Mm. what i had discovered was that in almost all the cases, like in a very high percentage of the cases, justice was used in context of retribution for the one who was hurt. So it wasn't actually retribution, like to basically dig more holes, like to just punish the ones who had done the wrong. It was for restoring those who had been stolen from, or who had been abused, or like it was for actually, uh, repairing what was damaged. And because that was such, um, the you know, the high percentage of cases were um, used in that way, it would seem like um, to only think of justice as retributive in the way that you're using it. Um, I just felt like that was not the holistic view of justice. And I, I do feel like there are um, contexts where um, people would say that if you only just give back uh the damages you just repair the damages but you don't also punish those who did the wrong then that's not balanced right so so i do believe that uh from my word study that that also was true but i think that um adam's question that he brings up does uh do souls serve justice or does justice serve souls that that question really is key because mm-hmm. you can have the same sorts of behaviors, the same sorts of actions with different intentions.
1: And goals. Yeah, yeah, right. I didn't mean to cut you off there. Yeah,
2: no, You. I mean, well, and I mean just,
1: just to add to that, yeah. So, I mean, even even if you have all the different views of justice on the table and we don't create a competition between them, so we have retributive justice we have restorative justice. We have them both. We don't say one is really justice and the other isn't. You can still ask, what's the end goal? Is the goal of retributive justice? Now, I mean, I guess maybe you, you could build into the meaning of retributive justice, that the end goal is serving the demands of justice for no other reason than to serve these demands that must of metaphysical necessity and of God's nature be served. But it's so interesting. It's like, okay, yeah. I just have to be honest about my own experience with that. So as a father. I remember when I first had the acquaintance with this question about the purpose of justice, it's like I had my I was with my child, uh, Micah, my eldest, oldest child, and he was doing something and I asked him not to do it. And then um, he was just continuing to do it. And it wasn't in his own best interest to continue doing it. So then I said that, well, if you keep doing it, then this is going to be the consequence. Okay. Then he continued to do it. Um, and so then I said, okay, well now this is going to have to be the consequence. And then after that, he was, um, very sorry. He didn't want that consequence. Now in that moment, I felt like I still wanted him to understand like the seriousness of what he had done, but I also wanted to honor the fact that he was sorry. And so this may sound kind of weird, but like I gave myself the consequence. It was like a, like a timeout consequence. And I, I showed him what I was doing, you know, so he could really appreciate the seriousness of that. Okay. Now I'm not saying like, you know, that's always like the best thing to do or anything like this, but it was in that moment, like I was really thinking about this. I was like thinking, would I punish him just to serve the demands of justice or would I instead have a consequence to protect him from doing something or as a way of helping him to understand the seriousness of doing something that's destructive to himself. In other words, would the justice serve him or would it not serve him? I think that's a really fundamental question that is very much relevant. It's relevant to the wider political conversations and how we think of justice and what we think of as its ultimate purpose. And so, yeah, I mean, I I will just say that I've become persuaded that there is an understanding of justice that has a greater purpose than just, meeting the demands of justice that are abstract.
2: And can I can I just add that I think that a lot of um would think of someone who would be universalist as just considering God's love as um you know overreaching uh virtue that God has yes, without right. taking into account any justice. Yeah. Like, yeah. oh well just throwing out God's justice. The whole side of God. It's almost like yeah. the the picture is that the justice like evens out love it's like it's like on two sides of a scale and the picture that josh and i were trying to give in the book was actually a different picture instead of it being love and justice being on opposite sides of a scale sort of even each evening each other out um it was actually that the foundation of all the pillars is love and then from that foundation emerges something called justice now you might ask how could justice grow out of a foundation of love? How could it be on the foundation of love? And you have to ask yourself the question: If you only, um, you know, give your children, you know, good gifts like all the time, and then let's just say that they start to make very bad decisions. If you never give a consequence, if they never have the mirror to see what it is that they're doing that's destructive, if it's always sort of swallowed up in more and more you know you you put more and more pads around them so they you know don't get hurt you 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 know take more and more wounds upon yourself like to make sure that they never get wounded you know if you just keep doing that is that actually loving Mm -hmm. because what you're allowing is you're allowing your child to go on a path where they are actually developing the sort of character and the sort of disposition that is actually self-destructive And so if you Mm -hmm. actually are loving, you want to provide some sort of a natural feedback so that they can naturally be redirected back toward the path of, you might want to call it holiness or Mm -hmm. of godliness, of righteousness. And I think that if you just look at how the universe is set up, I think that that might explain why we have things like universal laws. We have things that it's like you cannot break the laws of physics like when you're on the earth like if you trip and you fall down and then you scrape your knee like that that is just a natural consequence and so then it actually causes you to mediate your behavior and so you know if you could just be as reckless as you want and then someone was always absorbing the consequences like if god was always interfering and doing miracles to like take away the consequences then You might say that actually what that's doing is is god's actually enabling bad behavior
1: Mm.
2: which is actually inconsistent with god's holiness so we really tried to draw out that distinction
1: yeah and the way that the love motivates that you know and it's interesting because then what you have is this pillar of justice that comes from love but then this pillar of justice ends up providing one of i think one of the strongest arguments or restoration, even of separated souls, or at least of the possibility of that. Um, because again, the justice is about making things right. And as long as there are broken relationships, we draw out the implications of this. You know, what's it like as a parent to be separated from your child? Like, do you just feel happy about it? Well, is God happy in heaven? Or does God just forget that they're being separated from him? You know what I mean? It's like, how, how can God's happiness be complete? while there are being separated from him. And and if it's not, then not everything's made right, even in heaven, yeah. Yes. not only right. in hell, but also in heaven, right? That's right. And if things okay. aren't made right, and if justice is making things right, well then it, it sounds to me like in order to actually meet the demands of justice, those relationships would need to be, dist- uh, to be restored. So that really, I would say that um, on this frame, the best argument for eternal separation Would have to be an argument that justice isn't fulfilled things aren't made right you know and that kind of turns it on its head right because a lot of people would say no the eternal separation is supported by an argument from justice but right the argument i'm just giving turns that exactly in the opposite direction yeah it goes the opposite way right
3: and i do wonder at that point if um If God sort of fails in that other scenario, (laughs) if justice isn't actually fulfilled ultimately and it just sort of stops, are we suggesting that God's sort of ultimate purposes end up in some kind of failure?
1: Yeah, yeah. maybe maybe he fails, but maybe it's sort of metaphysically necessary, right? So even he he can't help it. It's just the demands of justice, you know, I... I So he's upholding
3: those demands, right? Yeah, right. Yeah.
1: But still, I mean, it's very interesting to turn the argument from justice around so that it's, it's no longer the argument that, well, if justice is fulfilled, then hell has to be forever because these are yeah. sins against an infinite being. And it's like, no, know, yeah. it's the opposite. If justice, yeah. if things are actually made right, yeah. if that is possible and God doesn't fail, then there <laughs> has to be reconciliation ultimately. Yeah, ultimately. yeah
0: for sure. And some, like just to add to that, like I've thought about that too. And that's what kind of led me toward like an annihilationism view but then you even explore that, like, is it really justice and love for God just to eventually just give up on somebody? And that just doesn't seem right either at all. Like you, the picture of like the, there should, love is always, if there's always love, then there's always a chance. And so it's interesting, you kind of like hit it from the two sides or whatever. So like, you know, like if there's always a chance, but yet it's never fulfilled and justice is never served. But if he does put an end to it, then he kind of just gives up and like, it isn't all loving or whatever. So I thought that was really kind of like a really, really good case. Basically,
1: it's also interesting if you've ever had an experience of having an enemy who becomes a friend, there's something I've had that experience and there's something so meaningful and so rich. It reminds me of, of Jesus's statement, uh, who forgives more? the one forgiven little or the one who for loves, loves yeah more. yeah yeah who loves more or is it who loves yeah who loves more the one forgiven little or the one forgiven uh less right <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: i can't even He's
1: the all right kid, I, I... The I... thank, thank this is why theology why she's here
3: I'll just
1: a theology check for you. <laughs> oh you guys know what i'm trying to say yes no i know yeah yeah yeah, yeah. for sure Yeah. So that richness of reconciliation, um, Mm -hmm. you know, because you might wonder, well, why, why even create beings that you, why, why take a risk of separation, even in the first place? It's like, well, there is value in choice, but then there's also value in the reconciliation. And sometimes the, it's not that, you know, it's not like this. It's not like you want somebody to be separated for the sake of a richer experience of reconciliation. It's just that when you consider the risk of that, you also consider the ultimate uh, value of reconciliation in the long term, if that is a possibility.
0: Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, Trying to see where we're at here. I know. Yeah, we have like a whole list of questions. So I'm all confused now. Yeah, I mean, yeah, behind it,
3: the we can kind of transition
1: into sort of. Yeah, uh, are you guys gonna best. raise some objections, some penetrating critiques. Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> it's going to hurt. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, both the, of us the, are. The definitely...
3: problem, the problem with having me on is that yeah. I'm a universalist, so I'm not gonna, I'm yeah. not really gonna <laughs> push back too much.
0: Yeah, and John's kind of gotten me down this uh, path of really, really exploring these ideas a lot so. Yeah, yeah so so um, ethan are
1: are you still annihilationist or have you i mean am I'm,
0: I'm pretty sure i consider myself a universalist at this point like it just it just like like it just as far as yeah i don't know i'm pretty much like haven't been convinced by any other argument so but i don't like like to take too strong of a stance because i know i'm like i mean it takes a long time I, i'm never gonna know everything so I mean obviously i don't think any of us are taking like we know this to be true or whatever but
2: so i think one thing that is interesting to point out is that what our book does is it tries to actually expand the picture a little bit beyond the traditional christian narrative of god created the world and then it's the you know the the world is sort of like the holding bay for making a decision and then once you make a decision, then there's yeah. the rest of eternity. So it's yeah. basically, it's like, there's three stages. It's like, God creates, then we make the decision, then God keeps, or he throws them out. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. and I think that, that what, what, um, what I would hear, uh, from a lot of Christians or, or, you know, from my own upbringing, my own feeling would be that, well, the biblical text you know, basically tells the story of um, you know the history of the universe and the cosmos and and the future of everything right so having that understanding then it's like okay well there wasn't anything before humans were created on, on the earth and then there isn't any other drama or any other plot besides the new heaven and new earth that just starts this new era and it's', it's sort of just um stagnant like there is no other like epoch of history after that it's like you start the the new heaven, new earth, and then that's kind of it. It's like a it's almost like a uh, you know, you just have a, a line graph and you just keep it going and it just is kind of constant, right? And I think that there's um, you know, on that view, it wouldn't actually make sense to say that there could be another choice, right? Because that's it's going against the whole frame. It's like by the frame of understanding there was one choice that you had which was in the holding bay of the earth right during your your lifetime you had one decision to make whether you're on the right side or the wrong side and then after that it's just stagnant it's like it just continues going in a certain direction there's no turning back from that point and i think that that perhaps when I consider for myself, that would perhaps be one of the hardest things to, to be considering, like on a universalist frame, because, and, and I think that's also why a lot of universalists would even just make the argument as well, that there is no hell. Like there is, there just is no such punishment like that. Um, because if there's that frame, it's like, there's other reasons to make that argument as well. Like God just wouldn't do such a thing. Um, however, I do believe that Um, if you look at the sort of suffering that human beings are allowed to go through on the earth, like you can reason that God would allow human beings to go through all sorts of suffering. So it's not just like off the table for a loving God to allow some amount of suffering. So I think that, uh, in, in the book, creating that fictional setting, throwing in a little bit of these, you know, food for thought, uh, you know, comments every once in a while, Um, I think that the purpose that uh, I would have in that is to open the framework uh, instead of it being so like, you know, book end uh, sort of like the interpretation of history is like with two book ends. It's like you have the beginning, you have the middle holding bank, and then you have the end, right? Instead of thinking of it like that, like think of it as an ongoing story, like that in a sense, maybe on different levels in different contexts, God continues to strive with his creation and that the Bible gives us the story, perhaps with glimmers of the outside context, but mostly the biblical story is telling us how God will contend with human beings on the earth during this um, This episode. Yeah, during this episode. (laughs) Um, And so we're not actually told any backstories about how God was interacting with the angels before he created the earth we're not really told about that like did that all happen in this sort of you know one verse at the beginning like god created everything he created the heavens and the earth and so all of that drama that happened wasn't even really real like there wasn't even really a drama um but somehow we have the serpent in the garden so how did that happen like we weren't told that story You know, and so then it's like, okay, well, we have a little glimmer of that in later passages, right? But um, I think that uh, if I can understand the perspective of a a lot of Christians who might be resistant to the universalist picture, um, the way that I would understand their feeling of resistance would be that it just doesn't make sense if you have the bookend view of the reality that we're in. It's like, how can you have another set of choices after the book is over? Right?
1: Right. Unless you just skip the judgment, right? Because yeah, that, that's one of things the things we wanted to do in, in the book yeah. was to show how it's actually possible yeah. through judgment for there to be a, another episode and even reconciliation.
2: So then that goes yeah. into another meta analysis of, of what the purpose of the scripture is and yeah. you know how to interpret some of these things. And so like that's a whole other topic, which you know we didn't want to get distracted so in this sort of fictional content we can just you know throw a few little things in there to just you know be like oh i i never mm-hmm. thought of it that way you know like and we just throw little things in there but and I again the
1: goal that, the goal I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt but like yeah. the goal is not like oh we have an agenda like this is our secret special way of trying to kind of persuade people through fiction or something you know like it is exactly what we said at the beginning it's, yeah. it's like yeah exploration because and, exploration widens your options for yeah. thinking, understanding.
2: And I think that that's one, one thing that, you know, if there were, if there were another love language, it would be exploration, like for us, right? Nice. <laughs> and like, yeah. we would yeah. just, we would just like to consider like, what if, what if, you know, and, and asking those questions, I think leads to the sight of something, oh, I actually didn't see that that verse could mean that if you have this frame like, Oh, I never saw that before. Right. And, and then it opens your mind to the ability of things being hidden with even within the scripture that you just wouldn't see if you have a certain frame. And so causing there to be a little bit of curiosity about the frame, um, I think is one of the things that I, I personally would be very animated by. Um, and so like, I mean, for me, like that's, even why i would throw in some little things that could be considered controversial but i do that on purpose because hey like let's just consider you know there's a frame that we have why do we never question the frame
1: yeah yeah we don't even see the frame sometimes that we have because it doesn't feel like a frame it just is reality right and then it was natural yeah yeah by seeing another frame it actually helps you to to see that, oh, okay, this that's was right. actually a frame, yeah. And the yeah.
2: fictional setting really helps to do that in a way that's, that's not, not threatening. threatening. Oh, totally, yeah. Yeah, I totally so agree. <laughs> it allows it to be something where it's like, oh, okay, that's an interesting idea. Maybe it has no bearing on reality whatsoever, you know. And and we're actually not attempting to make an argument about what the reality is in this book. We're actually the the goal that we have is to actually just allow people to have new ideas it's it's a new way of exploring the topic so that people can perhaps even see one another better
1: yeah 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 to see each other to really enter into the different perspectives understand each other Mm -hmm. yeah
3: um so i'm gonna ask one more question sort of out of uh respect for time i know that we we need to get to some QA too, Ethan, if that's all right. But um yeah, there's a few we can I, I wanna ask a quick sort of loop back to something that Ethan indicated earlier, which was about kind of personhood and what it means to be
1: mm-hmm.
3: a person. Um uh, but before that, I would like to know to kind of push you beyond the book, how would you describe your own positions on universal restoration? How would you sort of describe yourself? Not assuming that you're you completely agree with one another. Um but would you describe yourself as sort of hopeful universalist, um, something stronger? Um, yeah, I guess, how would you describe that?
1: It, uh, it, well, it's very interesting because I always feel like I'm, I'm on a journey, you know, and yeah, and so I sort of hesitate to come down too strongly on, on a position. But when I first began the journey, it was uh, started by this article, Universalism in the Bible, by Keith Theroux, a Christian philosopher at Yale University. And that article it didn't persuade me of universalism, but it persuaded me that it was possible for somebody to believe that the biblical data points towards universalism. Yeah. And that before that, I didn't even know that that was possible. And so I, I just thought, oh, the only people who would think that there could be an ultimate reconciliation are people who don't take the Bible seriously, or they don't believe it. Um, and so that was just kind of the beginning. And then there was just um, a kind of a long, series of episodes of me kind of looking at a rock at a new angle. I I would come to a verse and then I would think, well, let me look at the Greek on this, you know, so I investigate that. And then it just, things started to, to, I don't know what, what to say here. Things started to shift in my mind and it was very slow. And one night I had a dream and in my dream, I was talking with somebody about the view that there's the eternal conscious torment view and in that dream i told them i said i don't believe any being will be eternally uh, tormented consciously and and then when i woke up i realized that my belief had changed because up until that point i did Mm -hmm. believe that Mm -hmm. now it wasn't that i believed the opposite it was that i was at that point agnostic this this shows you how slow and gradual my journey has been sure And, and also it's one of those things where if there's a view that's labeled as dangerous don't go there you might even Lose your salvation if you go over there um i mean th- this is where the david bentley Hart's story is so different than mine because he said he never had the eternal conscious torment exactly you. right yeah and so it's like coming in and, into and, and he i think he was kind of baffled like yeah. how come people seem to hold on to this view despite all all the biblical evidence and all this stuff? it's like why? like do they not even want you know why, why not at least hope for universalism and i think for me it's because a uh any other view was called dangerous and so it was like considered hmm. to be compromising the Bible. It was it's like built into my system. And so it was it's very, very slow journey. And then I, I moved from there to, you know, I consider the annihilation view and i began to be a hopeful universalist. And I think it's it's healthy for me to just be honest and transparent that I'm I'm past the hopeful. So I'm I'm more thinking it's probable that the ultimate reconciliation yeah, yeah, is probable. Yeah um and alvin by the way alvin plantinga said this to me in the halls at notre dame and i asked him this question he said it was probable and that for me was very interesting because i never knew that alvin you know this great christian philosopher thought that universalism was a a probability um never Mm -hmm. never knew that before and just hearing him say that in a way was kind of encouraging to me
2: so yeah i do have a little bit of a different take on it so i um i was raised in a very like conservative uh like fundamental bible baptist church right so that's kind of my upbringing and i remember the sort of you know the type of sermon where you know if christians really believed in the eternal torment of hell they would crawl over broken shards of glass in order to rescue those who were perishing and i feel like it was the sort of thing where i felt um very guilty and also very powerless because it's like well if i'm not like trying to save somebody right now like i am like doing something very horribly eternally bad right but then what am i supposed to do is like there's eight billion people in the world like i'm just one person like even if i just like try to talk to every single person i can like that's just a you know small shred it like Mm -hmm. hardly makes a dent on the sort of eternal torment right and then you add into there the complexity of well what about the people who are making the arguments like you know they were you know hurt by the hypocrisy in the church and it's not just so simple or maybe they have other data that they're considering maybe you know and then you start to get into that that mucky debate area and like oh like it just makes it so hard right and so i i think that for me um what i have really learned in my own life is that there's something very important about being in the present moment and having your own power hmm. and personal sovereignty to make a decision right now because i think that when we are considering you know even when everyone's attention is on the you know the elections and what's happening in washington it's like most of us are not actually there <laughs> and that's just a very small number of people somewhere who don't even know us and we don't know them either either so it gives this very it gives this illusion that we're stuck in this reality that we actually have no power to change but then we think we might have a ability to change it if we just vote you know but then (laughs) we realize that one vote against millions really doesn't make a difference right and so it's this weird dilemma where we're putting all of our power on everyone else's actions and i think as christians we can also feel the same way like well all the power is in other people's actions and whatever God decides. Like, so I don't have any, you know, ability to really do anything, to change anything. But the way you flip that all around is you say, no, actually I have the power right now, whether I will be continually filled with the spirit. Will I exemplify love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Will I choose right now to do the hard thing, and, you know, tell my child who is doing something I think I don't really agree with them to do. Well, I try to correct them, even though it's an inconvenience to me and I would rather just let them do it. And, you know, I understand that later that will have, you know, a consequence because I didn't keep the boundary the first time. So why would they keep the boundary the next time? Like that basically the way that I have started to consider reality is by the frame of the present moment what Mm -hmm. is it Mm -hmm. that i can do in the present moment and then if i consider it that way suddenly everything seems more flexible because think about god telling moses i'm so mad at the israelites i'm going to destroy them moses replies and says but wait a second god these are your people what are the egyptians going to think if you wipe out your people right moses is in the present moment negotiating with god about what god is going to do presently that's a very vulnerable and real moment Mm -hmm. and if we can enter into that reality of the present moment then suddenly well you know when paul is you know speculating about whether there's a resurrection of the dead and he's saying well if there were no resurrection of the dead why are all these people getting baptized on behalf of the dead people and you're like what like like that just went over my head i have no idea what you're talking about right but if you consider it, that this is a real raw moment in the present. And if you really believe the Christian frame, every person that has passed on is real and they are presently existing and experiencing something right now. So if you think of it all in the very present moment, you say, what can I do? What, what, what is God doing? How is he thinking of that? What is that person doing right now? Like, What is reality like? Instead of thinking of it as, it's something off, off there that I can't, I can't do anything about that future. Think of it as what can I do right now? You know, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is within you. So you bring the kingdom of heaven wherever you are moment by moment, and you can choose whether to be bringing the kingdom of heaven or whether not to be right. And that's a, that's a present moment. And that actually, it doesn't actually predict whether someone could actually accidentally, you know when they're hiking, they, you know, slip down, uh, you know, the trail and, and a big boulder, you know, smashes, pins them down and they can't escape. And, you know, it's a very tragic thing. Like you can't actually predict that, but you can choose in the present moment, how am I going to align myself? Am I gonna align myself with God or am I not? And and I think that if you have the frame of that is the most real reality, it kind of shifts everything so that, um you know, I don't know, for me, it makes it so that everything is a possibility. (laughs) It's always a possibility. It's like, if Moses could negotiate with God, like why couldn't we like, you know, and so that might be a controversial frame, but for me, that has been very helpful, even just how I'm living my life instead of thinking of, Oh, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen in the world. Like what's happening Is it the end times, who knows what's happening. Right. And instead of thinking it like that, no, I'm thinking about what am I doing right now? How am I being filled and, and led by the spirit right now? And what sort of um, you know world am I creating for my family right now? And why am I waiting for somebody else to do something before I choose to act? So that um, for me has been a frame for understanding this that is a little bit different, I think, even in terms of like thinking, oh, well, I'm just a universalist. This is what I believe is going to happen someday. I think of it in terms of right now what is sort of the probability space especially because i'm a scientist and i think quantum mechanics you know i i used to solve wave equations like that i that's my language yeah. right like i understand yeah. that so i think of it in terms of the probability space it's like well what could be what could be right now and
1: how can you contribute to that and
2: how can i move toward well, the that, thing that i want that right?
1: comes into the book right because the question was given to the citizens of heaven at first you think it's a test to figure out whether universalism or Reconciliation is possible or something, but then later you find out that, oh, the restoration depended on the choice of the beings in heaven. So like, what if the question of whether universalism is true depends on us in the end, in the long term? Like what, what if it actually depends on whether beings seek reconciliation or don't, you know what I mean? Because it's almost Mm -hmm. like we think, well, it just depends on like whether it's just true in the abstract. Um, but if you, I like how you're putting that Rachel, like, if you think in terms of, okay, the present is what's real, what can I do and negotiate with God? What's, what's a possibility here? And maybe part of the game is, is, you know, God's sort of waiting to see what we will do. You know what I mean? Like he's waiting to see almost like, what will we try for? What will we press in towards? You know, and maybe, maybe there's some pressing ins that, in a, in a interesting sort of way, inspire God, sort of in the way that our kids inspire us. I mean, you know, within constraints, right? But it's like when our kids want something, there's a way which they can move our hearts along a direction. Mm-hmm. So if it's possible, then maybe it could become actual, but maybe it's not ultimately out of our control.
0: It's, yeah, that's super interesting, Jeez.
1: Ethan, do, would you mind if I ask the uh, yeah, person a
3: question real quick, and then we can move into Q and A? Yeah. Um, thank you guys. By the way, yeah, for, for doing sure. this,
0: that this was awesome. a great yeah. discussion. This is awesome. Um, this is so much thank fun. Thank you so much for your, yeah, thank
3: your you. insights and um, yeah, for one sure. Thing, one thing I do um, want
0: to say on uh, what we did just talk about. Yeah, I knew there was something I wanted to say and I like lost it. But <laughs> it's if now, I don't quick. say it right now, I'll <laughs> lose it again. So I'm saying it. But I thought like, what you brought up about, like, the whole evangelism and stuff, and I was actually kind of having this conversation on Twitter, like, right before now, and you explore this in the book really well, is, like, like, and especially what you were talking about, like, we have control over, like, what we do now. Like, no matter what, like, the outcome is, like, ultimate end, like, right now still does matter, and, like, these things Mm -hmm. really do still matter. And, like, the way you portrayed, like, God actually being grieved by... Like, when Satan was, like, all that stuff was happening and whatnot. Like, I thought that was, like, super powerful. And that's, like, it's, it like, some people want to say, like, oh, if the ultimate outcome is everyone will be saved, then why does it even, why does any of this even matter? And, like, like uh, just if I know, like, it's, like, the same thing. Like, I could think, like, yeah, I'm going to die one day, you know, but, like. Right. It
2: does, well, who cares it how i live right now yeah <laughs> exactly it yeah it still right, does matter right, matters but, you know, right ethan, now ethan, if, really if i see matters. like a
1: car is about to hit you yeah and i think oh i'm not going to protect ethan you know i'm going to let him get smashed or whatever because yeah. you know in the end he's going to go to heaven yeah. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> right? and it's like okay but i mean there is a reality of suffering now you mm-hmm. know and better to right, enter into right. flourishing sooner to relationships sooner better to seek the good as soon as you can
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. yeah, exactly. Ethan, okay. what yeah, you what you brought up segues beautifully into the question about um, personhood. Because um, where I was going was with uh, God being deeply grieved and suffering every time pain was inflicted on Lucifer in that sort of purifying judgment sequence in the book. Um, and you suggest that part of God and part of all of those who are in heaven, in some sense, would be in hell if souls were destined to sort of reside there forever, right? And therefore there would be suffering in heaven, if that's the case, right? Um, What do you think this implies about how we think about personhood as Christians, especially when the the sort of world around us constantly has us thinking in sort of individualistic ways? Right. How would you sort of suggest that
1: we should think otherwise? Okay, I think we probably both are itching to speak to this. So (laughs) here's what I've noticed, and it is showing up a lot in political tensions we tend it's so easy to do this Uh, i'll speak from the first person i easily reduce a person to their characteristics i think of them as a character and if it's a good character i might admire them and if it's a negative character i might be disgusted with them but you know there's a huge difference between the being and the characteristics that the being has and I'm convinced of this. I'm actually working on a book on the existence and origin of persons right now. And nice. one of the, one of the outcome great. themes of this book is going to be about the value of beings, of, 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 of a person that's distinct from the value of its attributes. Mm. So, you know, when I think about Rachel's love for me, I want her to love me. Me, the me, the, the one inside. And I, and I would love it if she loved me even while I'm not doing so great. You know, that might even motivate me to do better, right? Mm -hmm. There's a biblical uh, precedent for this, that while we were still sinners, God loved us so much, he died for us. That's right. Right? So, but how how can you love somebody who has negative characteristics unless the being with those characteristics is different from their characteristics? The being is always valuable. And for me, I find this so helpful when I think of people across, let's say the political spectrum, and I can find a way of, in my heart, loving with the emotion of love. When I think of the person as being just me over there with different characteristics. And I think that's that difference between the characteristics and the person is so central to even thinking about justice and thinking about how to treat one another. Because if we reduce people to their character, their characteristics, then we just limit our powers, the influence to love, because then we can only love somebody if their characteristics Are lovable, but if we see that they're more than their characteristics, then we can love them as as a person.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very it's very interesting because of it um, from different perspectives, right? So uh, Jesus said, "Us to be one in His Father are one," and can wonder what does that mean? Does that mean I am no longer individual? uh does it mean that i am sort of like one little speck in the midst of like this one thing over there and i think that this is um is hard to you know really comprehend or, or grasp i think from our current perspective but if we imagine that actually there's an element of both that's true and it comes back to what i was saying before about feeling disempowered when Things over there, those are happening, and I have no power to change it. Right. So you can have the feeling that you're connected to a group, uh, like, for example, our country right now. Like, well, our country just made a decision of something. Right. And you can feel like, well, whether you agree or whether you disagree, like maybe if you feel like you agreed that you contributed to that. But what if you disagreed, like, well, then maybe you can feel all like, you know, distraught because, oh, like, I don't know, I don't know, I feel powerless, I can't affect it, right? And then the other way, like four years ago, right? Like, you know, people are like, oh, man, I feel so powerless. No, like, you know, I can't be, right? And um, and I think that there's a way in which we can feel part of a group where we're actually very disempowered because we don't take any responsibility for ultimately like what the group is doing. is like the group is just doing something. We're just kind of floating, floating along with everything. You right? can
1: add your grain.
2: Um, and so then there's another way of actually um, realizing that you are the agent of change and of making decisions, right? So mm-hmm. it's up to you how you respond. It's up to you whether you're going to talk uh, kindly to someone or about someone or whether you're going to speak, uh, you know, in mocking ways, or you know, <laughs> you know, ridiculing someone, right? Um, those are your choices that you can personally make, and that actually has nothing to do with what somebody else does. Mm-hmm. But then you move to another perspective and you say, you know what? I have, I have the ability to make my own choice. No one can force me to make one choice over another choice. But my choice actually affects somebody else it has a ripple onto yeah. another person. Yeah. Yeah. So actually I have a responsibility to make choices that are actually going to multiply goodness and love and and all the virtues of God's kingdom instead of making choices that are perhaps completely ignorant of what anybody else thinks or making choices that you know serve me and and that hurt everybody else, right? So um I think that when when you go from, you know, It's like, you think that everyone's connected, you can have, in a sense, a very low level of consciousness, as in you're just, just going along with whatever everybody else tells you what to do, and you're actually not even thinking for yourself or taking any responsibility for your behavior, right? But I think that once you connect to yourself and realize, no, I am the one who's responsible for my choices, there's a higher level of unity that goes beyond that, which is that two people Are making, they're taking responsibility for their own choices, can choose to unite in their intentions and they can, in a sense, iron sharpens iron. They can, you know, wrestle with each other and they can choose to be unified as individuals who are responsible for their own behaviors and their own actions. And then they can choose together, corporately, to consider how their actions are affecting others. And so I think that, you know, Both of those elements are actually very important uh, in considering, you know, personhood, right? Because it's like you have to understand that you personally take responsibility, but there are others outside of you as well. And that the way that you affect others is through your own agency. It's like you actually, you know, can make choices to spread something from your own perspective, but it's actually up to them. You can't force them. act a certain way or think something or to receive something it's like it's up to them they are their own agent but that as you are freely giving from your perspective that is what creates that attractiveness that allows the people to come together in unity as sovereign selves as personal Mm -hmm. agents um and so i think that that's really you know what to strive for and that's really why it's really vulnerable you know god is saying what more could I have done, you know, when he's considering the rebellious Israelites, right? What more could I have done, right? Because Mm -hmm. he's actually considering those individuals as sovereign agents, and he's trying to give, he's trying to allow them an opportunity to be unified, right? But then if they choose not to be unified, that's up to them, right? So what more could I have done, right? And so um, I think that always maintaining that you you yourself are open and you yourself want to be unified with people as jesus said you always bless your enemies right um that that is the stance that leads to unity um and that it's actually you know a difficult stance it's a vulnerable stance and you have to exercise wisdom you have you know we all are constantly making decisions every day that affect that but that ultimately that's maybe perhaps even the highest um, aspiration we can have as limited human beings. Yeah.
0: For sure. That yeah. was really
3: well That's said. Great. Um, yeah. I'm uh I'm gonna have to head out. My wife needs to get on a stream and she needs this microphone. So I'm okay. do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, but but uh J- Josh and Rachel, thank you so much for your for your time. And I I would love to kind of follow up with with both of y'all at some point and whether that's just through email correspondence or something like that, but yeah, I'd love to talk more about the book and about what y'all are doing um, in your lives. So yeah, thank you, John. Thank you. John. I'll, thank I'll thank you. Yeah, thanks, John. Yep. Yeah, it was a pleasure, for
0: sure. For sure. Yep. Yeah. Take care. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. And I think I don't know if we had too many questions in the chat. I mean, I know there were some, but I think we hit on a lot of things. So, and we're about at time anyway. So, that was pretty good. I really, really enjoyed this. Again, yeah, like it's, everything John said. It's a, like. The book was awesome, and then getting to talk to you guys was really, really cool. I've loved a lot of your stuff, Josh, from a while ago. And, like, yeah, it's just been really cool. And I know a lot of people – I thought – one thing I do want to add, and I, like, as I've been exploring this whole universalism idea, I always thought this was really interesting. And, like, I know, like, you don't have to be a universalist to be a a nice person, or, you know, like, that's not what I'm getting at. But I always found it interesting that, like – everyone uh, Careful. That would, yeah <laughs> everyone that would talk that everyone was always like oh yeah i love josh raspy you know he's like and you're always have like come across as like such a good person to talk to and like really like exploring these ideas and stuff and then like I couldn't find like when i found out you were a universalist i'm like ah, oh, it's just like it's just funny you know the way that works out like and you know i don't and like i said i don't want to And, like, I think you make a really good case of the book for, like, people.
1: Hey, hey, I I was nice even when I wasn't a universalist. I was still the same, had the same character.
0: (laughs) Yeah. 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 I just found that to be, like, a funny thing or whatever, you know. You're very kind. Yeah, exploring this idea. But, like, I just want to say, yeah, thank you, guys. I put a link to your book in the description. I definitely recommend everybody check it out. And you got a number of other actual philosophy books and stuff, too, that are all great. But, yeah, I just... Thank you guys for coming on. Um, Yeah, that's really, I guess I can end it there. If you guys want to close out with saying just any last thing, that'd be perfect. But yeah, I just really appreciate it. Well, just thank
1: you. Yeah, this is very special. And, uh, you know, if if there was any question in the chat that uh, that, uh, you feel like we didn't cover, um, we could still do that. But if not, then uh, yeah, this has been really great. I very much appreciate this time.
2: Yeah, and um, I think my... Um, encouragement to everyone would be uh, to just, you know, every day, take it one step at a time and consider what can I do today? And if uh, if you're considering every day making a choice, you can just ask yourself, um, what is the most positive step forward Mm -hmm. that I can take? And I think that training yourself to always see what's the most positive thing that I can do, what's the most positive interpretation i can give what's the most positive thing i can um, aim for right now that the more you'll see positive things emerging in your uh realm of possibilities
0: yeah awesome awesome very well said yeah i i think we hit on most things like a lot of it was like we were getting getting at like what your actual position was and we definitely touched on that Mm. for a while so yeah yeah Yeah, I appreciate this. And, uh, yeah, if everybody that enjoyed the video, if you could hit like and subscribe to the channel. I've hit 300 subscribers not too long ago, so I thought that was pretty cool. So I appreciate everybody for watching. Appreciate YouTube for being on. And with that, we will head out.